Welcome to Sweet Talk. This broadcast is brought to you by the Continuing Education Workforce Training Division of Idaho State University's College of Technology. This podcast is part of our continuing outreach efforts, and the format is conversational. We will be having conversations with businesses, professionals, entrepreneurs, community agencies, and, in all cases, difference makers. Now, let's get started with Sweet Talk. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is, uh, I'm Jason Bataldin. I'm the Assistant Director at Continuing Education Workforce Training, or as we like to refer to it as SWEET. And uh, we're coming live from my, uh, well, not live. This isn't going to be live, uh, but we're recording this podcast from my uh, dining room. And uh, with us today, we have uh, Father Hugh, Father Hugh Fice. And uh, Father, say hello real quick so that the audience can see you if they're watching the video. Howdy. <laughs> Very good. Father, you're coming to us from the Monastery of Ascension in Jerome, Idaho. Uh, it's a Benedictine uh, monastery. Um, and Father, there are probably uh, a lot of, we could have a great discussion just about uh, the monastery and its history in Idaho, and uh, as uh, we've discovered a lot, a lot of people aren't really aware there is a monastery in Idaho, um, but we have one, and it's been around since 19, when? 1965. Very good. So, Father, we, we have you on today. I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Oh, by the way, uh, just in general, uh, we are still doing those, our loyal listeners to our sweet podcast. I know I've got at least five of them out there. Um, our loyal listeners, uh, we're continuing to produce episodes. Uh, we're doing it in the way everything's being done today, through Zoom. And uh, so th this is not an endorsement of Zoom. I'm not asking. <laughs> it's not a promotion of Zoom. But uh, that's the way we're doing it today. And we'll get this up and produce, uh, posted. And we'll continue to use this format. Um, typically, as always, uh, we're still going to stick to our 20-minute rule. And uh, as we do, when we start the 20-minute timer, uh, we do it when we say, hear the word welcome. So welcome, Father Hugh. Um, I'm just going to ask, uh, if there's a reason why we I have invited you to be on the show today, um, and it has to do with kind of your personal experience, or not experience, expertise. Um, but Father, before we jump into the reason why we're having on, uh, you got to introduce yourself at all a little bit to our audience um, and uh, tell us maybe uh, where you're kind of from and, and uh, maybe just uh, how long you've been uh, a monk at the monastery and, and maybe a little bit of insight too into your uh, expertise, your field of study, I should say. I uh, am a native of Eastern Oregon and uh... I went to the Catholic Seminary in Mount Angel, Oregon, which was operated by a monastery. And so I, I did my college, high school and college there and priesthood studies. And then uh, I, I studied in Washington, D.C. for a number of years, philosophy and theology. And then in Rome, 
and my specialty in Rome was medieval theology. So that's what makes me an expert on Black Death. <laughs> I am not, but I, I guess I know more than a lot of people do about it. Well, you, you know more than I do. And uh, I, considering today's uh, relevant issue of pandemics, um, I figure let's uh, have a conversation maybe about, uh, I, it's not the, the, the plague of the 14th and 15th or 14th century at least, uh, and the many times it appeared thereafter, uh, was probably not the first uh, virus to attack the human race in history, but it is kind of the most infamous. Is that the right? Would, would you call it the most infamous so far? Everybody has heard about the plague. Yeah, it's also the worst by far. Oh. Yeah, and the the first time the plague came was during the time of the Emperor Justinian yeah. in the century. Uh, and it, it did a lot of enormous amount of damage and killing people. But when it came in the 1347 to 1351 to Europe, uh, and it had been working its way there from somewhere around the Gobi Desert for se several decades, apparently. Uh, there it killed in Europe maybe somewhere between 20 and 50% of all the people. Wow. So, I mean, that, you know, in terms of today, if there's 300 million people in the United States, then that would be somewhere between 80 million and 150 million. So that was a... a the magnitude of the Black Plague was quite a bit different than this one, but uh, the the plague there was was had a different kind of uh, cause too. It was it was uh, uh, carried by by uh, fleas, and the fleas would then feed on rats, and the rats would carry the fleas around and. At some point, the fleas would uh, gorge too much and and kind of blow up, and that would then launch the, the the disease. And there were really three strains to it. Two of them were almost always lethal, and wow. the third, what we call the bubonic plague, was not quite as lethal as that. Wow. So anyway, you could catch this from from this parasite. Uh, and you could also get it directly from people that were infected. So, but the the difference between us and them is they didn't know what caused it, and right. they didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. Well, and and then I suppose you know the the medieval period isn't necessarily known as one of the the cleanlier periods of human history either. So I imagine uh, just a lot of things rampant. Uh, you know, just. Uh, you know, everything from waste to disposal or lack thereof to everything else was a breeding ground probably for fleas and this wonderful little virus or epidemic that swept through. So hopefully there's a few differences other than just uh, <laughs> the mortality rate of the, of the, the, of the, uh, the virus per se. But so that kind of just brings me a question though, a little bit, you, you know, people didn't know, you know, obviously, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, uh, I, uh, mythical ideology or mythical practices um, that are uh, people point to um, everywhere from those long masks that you see in drawings depicted in art with the long nose that uh, people would wear 
with the idea that that was supposed to, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'm saying is um, the people approached uh, the plague a lot differently than I hoped. And we could say we're approaching this uh, period of pandemic. Is that safe to assume? Or, or no, do you see some similarities there? They suspected that, that bad air had something to do with it. And so uh, the people that could, the wealthy people, some of them would go out to their country estates to wait it out, uh, which, you know, they, they were uh, self-distancing. So that probably <laughs> had some good results or it could have. But, but by and large, uh, and then of course they would pray and that, that would have kind of the, it was counterproductive, we know, because they were getting together where they could share, share the, <laughs> the, the causes of the disease. But that was, that was one of their strategies, or two mm -hmm. of them, I guess. Yeah, and then people reacted differently. I mean, you could do a lot of praying and, and uh, you know, hope, ask God to help you, or you could just say, yeah, there's nothing we can do. Fate is after us, so let's have a party and have a good time. And uh, th those were kind of extreme reactions. Uh, other people thought the best thing to do was just to try to eat healthy and, and, and you know, exercise and so forth. So there, there were different strategies, just like there are today. And really, it's kind of just more on just trying to cope. I mean, I think that's one of the just interesting comments is, or uh, things that kind of struck me a little bit when I was doing just a little look at this was, I mean, it, it was a reality changer, like, uh, you know, the plague when it in the 1300s, regardless of you know, whether they understood what causes or it changed the way, you, you know, they lived um, and how they lived. Is that safe to assume? I mean, that was my understanding. But, I mean, is there real evidence of that in the history that, or did they just continue to kind of go as normal and just kind of treat it as, well, if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't kind of thing. Well, some people did. But... Again, if 20 to 50 percent of the people are dying, and and that stretch of four years is over different places, so the mortality could happen in a few months. And so, when one thing they changed, they had to do a lot of mass burials. For <laughs> it was, and uh, it was just a kind of a, a pervasive fear, as far as we know. I mean, oh. and, uh, Boccaccio, the, who wrote the Decameron, it was about some people that escaped to the country to, and then told stories to each other. He has a description of, of the reaction of people. I mean, it would be, I mean, this is scary what we have now, but it was infinitely more scary then. I mean, when you could, because you weren't, it wasn't happening in New York City or something. It was happening down the street. You know, your neighbors were dying like flies. Yeah, you could be in the house next door to you. Mm -hmm. yeah, Paul, you have a question. Yeah, um, I thought I remembered reading that um, that at some point during the plague, they actually thought 
it was being transmitted by cats and they went on a uh, basically a purge of um, killing felines um, and that actually worsened it since they the, the uh, cats were no longer killing the rats. Is that true? That I don't know. I, I never heard of that. Cats would have the fleas too, of course, <laughs> I think. But yeah, that, if they did that, that was a bad idea. Medieval people weren't very fond of cats. They, 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 they liked them as rat killers, but that's about it. They weren't seen as pets? No. <laughs> Other than they were very functional, huh? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think one, one goat was worth nine cats. Good mousers all, of course. Uh, I read that somewhere anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. So kind of like dealing like currently, you know, uh, I guess um, you brought up an earlier comment too, that you said the rich people were able to kind of escape to their country estates. We almost kind of see that today too a little bit is, is that I'm assuming the plague, or is that a false assumption on my part that the, that the plague in the 14th century, did that affect the wealthy as the poor equally, or is, is my assumption correct that obviously the poor were a lot uh, harder impact by the plague than the wealthy? Um, fine statistics are kind of hard to come by, but yeah. one of the reasons the plague was so devastating was that um, Europe had had a number of really bad harvests from 1315 to 1325, uh, which had killed a lot of people and weakened the population from malnutrition. Wow. And, and so you would expect that the wealthier people wouldn't have been malnourished like the poor people. So it may have helped them some, but, but by and large, uh, it was uh, was not a respecter of persons once you got it. And, and it would only have been the, the more common version, the bubonic version, that where maybe your resistance would have helped you. Like today, mm -hmm. where today, you know, if you have pre pre-existing conditions, it would be harder on you. Right. Right. I think yeah. that the people that got the plague, a lot higher percentage of them died than than if you get this virus, yeah, whatever reason. Yeah, I think the mortality rate is, and it wasn't right. It it just is. A, it was a more vicious killer, maybe as a virus than than even what we're dealing with here. Maybe I think so. Yeah. So, but it was kind of a, also a great equalizer, wasn't? It? I mean, economies kind of changed after that a little bit too. Is that kind of the other the impact of that one? Yeah, because because it, most people were engaged in agriculture and, and the most of the agriculture was by, on manors, large farms where there were sharecroppers or different forms of labor by the individual workers in relation to the land. And with the Black Plague, uh, plague the... Uh, the value of labor went way up. Oh. The wages went way up. And so there were laws, like in England, they had to pass laws to put a, the wealthy passed laws to put a, a 
limit on how much you could pay the laborers so that they couldn't bargain, you know? And, and that ultimately led to the, the great uh, revolt of 1381. Because you, you have to remember that they had this big, big plague in around 1350, but it, it came every, several times every generation for another couple hundred years. And, and it nailed the people that weren't immune yet, you know, and right. so took out a lot of younger people. And so labor, a whole bargaining power of labor shifted. And that was really the end of the manorial system. If you owned a farm and you couldn't find workers, the best thing to do was rent it out. And, and so that's what they did. A lot of rentals or, and then if you were a poor farmer, you owned three acres and like three guys around you all died. If you could manage it, you would buy up theirs and you, your holdings would become bigger. So it, it, it had a lot of effects on the economy. I mean, it, it kept the population down for a hundred years, never recovered to what it was before the plague until, or before the, the starvations in the early 14th century. It took a, 150 years to recover that. Wow. Wow. Huh. So like the kind of question I'm curious then is, is, I mean, what, and, and maybe it's too much of a stretch, maybe because the black, the plague itself, you know, it was 1300s, the science, the technology, the understanding of how it worked, um, sort of that, you know, just that ignorance, maybe that, maybe that is sort of a inhibitor, but, is there lessons from that experience that, you know, maybe we should be looking at in modern day to kind of say to ourselves, okay, I mean, viruses aren't new to humanity. Um, and I, you know, it could be argued that maybe as a, as a world, as a generation or two, we got lulled into sleep after 1918 a little bit thinking that maybe viruses aren't, you know, we forgot how serious they can be, but, is there a lesson maybe for us in modern day as we kind of are approaching this new uh, COVID-19, sort of this pandemic, and as we're all trying to determine what the new reality is going to look like, you know, is there anything we can learn from the medieval experience, the, the experience of the 14th century? Hmm. Um, well, one thing is, you know, we, we talk about globalization and, it's the big new deal for the last, you know, few decades, but it has its drawbacks. And, and one of them is that it spreads disease and the, the, the black death got to England, got to Europe. It, it hit Sicily in 1347 on 1347 on a boat and, you know, uh, the Med across the Mediterranean and and so we have to think about that in terms of if if just in a tightly connected world like this things are going to spread and you know they, they had a boat once in a while landing and we have thousands of airplanes every day or we did and mm -hmm. so that that's going to it's a, it's a, now it's a global issue in a way that it wasn't then, even though it was global then also. 
And I mean, so we're going to have to figure out about, I mean, I, there are different ways this could go. You could have closed uh, tendency to close systems, you know, country yeah. stuff, or you could have a, a growth and cooperation to deal with this on the international level. And then the other thing is just as those, those, those uh, peasants were able to become middle class if they could buy up enough land or, and that, um, the, and it did strengthen the nation's the central government some as the, as the rural aristocracy lost their workers and their incomes, then the, the state became stronger. And that, that's likely to happen as a result of this. And, and we're giving all kinds of powers to the, the government uh, that they don't ordinarily have. And it would, be, it would be important probably to think about how we're gonna get those back. Yeah. And, you know, because it, it, it did, it, it, it helped the poor people in some ways, the ones that survived, but it also made them much more under the thumb of the, the national government rather than the local Lord. So that's something to think about, I think. No, I think that's, you know, that's a valid point. I think that's an interesting just discussion in general and, and uh, you know, even probably a bigger topic than even this podcast, but you know, just that discussion, that, that's, to be honest, and, and, and probably that's the thing I've been constantly sort of uh, just kind of running over my mind, the new reality. What's this new reality, right? Even in the way we work. I mean, here I am, I'm sitting in my dining room, you know, you're in, you're in your place and, and Paul is in his place. And yet we're still, you know, doing the work. This was the thing that we did in the studio on the campus. And now we're having to figure out a way to do that's a new reality and and whether it continues like this or not obviously is uh, is a question for a much larger discussion with probably a lot more important people <laughs> than us but uh you know that's the thing the new reality and 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 so my you know i I'm assuming that even you know but yes the plague uh I think I even read that the last sort of um, major spread of the plague occurred in the early 1900s in San Francisco. Um, it was some rats, same issue rats, and but they were organized. It, it didn't go really huge, but it was present. Oh my goodness! Well, that's the timer, Father. All right. Well, anyway, you know, it, but they they did a mass uh, uh, eradication of the rats, and they got rid of them all, and. So, uh, you know, but still, it, you know, the bubonic plague is still present, you know, even in some places, even recently. So, you know, but it's that new reality, right? We all have to learn to live sort of a new reality. And yet, how do we maintain uh, what's important to us and as individuals and as, as individuals in government, I suppose, is the real challenge that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the last thing is, so we're doing without a whole bunch of stuff. and do we want to go back to the old normal? <laughs> that's right. what Hope said, I think the other day, and that's worth thinking about too, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like I got, I got an email from this friend of mine, a young woman who, who has been working two full-time jobs and going to graduate school. So she hasn't had time to do anything but work, study and sleep for a number of years. 
and now she's only working one job. And for the first time in living memory, I guess since she was in high school, she has time to do hobbies and read about stuff she never has. And I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't want to go back to the old way. At least she's she's actually enjoying herself more than I ever remember. Right. So. You know, maybe that maybe that's the one uh, silver lining in all this is maybe it's given us hopefully not only as individuals, but maybe communities, maybe, you know, countries, states, the whole nine yards, an opportunity for us to kind of re-examine is the way we were living, was it really worthwhile? So, you know, that that's a great point, Father. I, I, I'd like to dwell on that one for a little bit. So, Well, we ran we ran out of our time. Father, I, 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 I Father Hugh, I, I kind of hope we get you back on the show sometime. Maybe we could talk about something a little less, a uh, little less, uh, um, Morbid than uh, the pandemic of the 14th century. <laughs> no, that would be fine. I don't yeah. know if anything else, but we can find something. Maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, you got an interesting life over there. I hope, uh, hope that my dedicated five listeners, our dedicated five listeners to this, uh, decide to Google Monastery of Ascension today, and and maybe maybe when everything's all cleared up and you guys are safe, they can come out and see your lovely little place out there. It's one of my favorite places to visit. Paul, you got anything you want to add before we shut the show down? No, um, maybe uh, you can just give me a, a little uh, explanation of the monastery just quickly, because oh, uh, yeah. we really didn't uh, go into that at all. Um, I, I Just a brief explanation of what the monastery is and what it does. Well, the monastery is kind of small. It has, it's, it's has about 10, 12 members, and uh, they they came here, the, the Catholic authorities of Idaho wanted a monastery, so they invited us from Oregon to come over, and and they sent a couple guys over, and they prospected, and, and we were given this land outside of Jerome that we're on. You can see out the window there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's out there. <laughs> and so over the over the time they they build it up and and we, what we do is we have a retreat house or a guest house and we we host a lot of different organizations. Currently we host a lot of quilting groups. They love the place. <laughs> so and and that's how we support ourselves. That and the and the income from the farm which we don't run ourselves. And we, we're a very disparate group. I mean, I'm the scholar, and I was before I came here. I was a professor and all. So that's, that's uh, it's because it's small and we're not heavily engaged in some project, there's room for individual uh, efforts. We have a big library, so it's good for me. Yeah. And and we, we help different ways. We we when we were younger we did a lot of help in different churches when they needed a priest and and I was a university chaplain for eleven years and things like that. So we tried to be a contributing member to the church and society around us. I don't know if that helps. Uh, no, we, it does, it does. We pray a lot, I mean. <laughs> 
maybe two or three hours a day at, at different times we gather to pray. And that, that's our number one thing. That we all do that. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for explaining that to me. You're welcome. All right. All right. Well, uh, we're going to shut her down. We thank you, Father Hugh, for your time, and we thank you for uh, your wisdom and, and insight on this. And hopefully uh, this podcast will entertain and enlighten and then maybe encourage further discussions. As always, uh, those of you who are interested, hey, Sweet is still open and up for business. We're running classes. Um, our new catalog hits May 4th. Um, so most likely this podcast will be out when the new catalog uh, is up and running. So we want to be sure to have you check that out. So you want to go to cetrain.isu.edu um, and check out the catalog, download it, and take a look at it. Father Hugh, again, thank you very much. Paul, thank you very much. And uh, we're just really glad to be here today. Thank you. Thank hey, you. Continuing education, workforce training, SWEET is comprised of professionals dedicated to serving your educational needs. We understand that when it comes to your future, it's all about you. Because our staff and faculty have real-world experience actually doing what they teach, our students obtain the skills and knowledge they are looking for to be competitive in today's marketplace. For more information, please visit our website, ctrain.isu.edu. That is ctrain.isu.edu. Or call us at 208-282-3372.